Hello, we're Equinor. As a global energy leader, we're working hard to reduce methane emissions and our carbon footprint. Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Monday, January 27th. In today's news, a new poll shows President Trump is in a much stronger position than he was in the fall to get reelected. A fifth case of the coronavirus has been confirmed in the United States. And the nation is in shock after Kobe Bryant and his daughter die in a helicopter crash. But first, the big idea. Congressional Democrats are stepping up their calls for former National Security Advisor John Bolton to testify in President Trump's impeachment trial following a new report that the president told Bolton directly last August that he wanted to withhold military aid to Ukraine until it aided investigations into the Bidens. The New York Times reported last night that in the summer conversations, Trump directly tied the holdup of nearly $400 million in military aid to getting announcements of investigations into Joe and Hunter Biden. That's according to an unpublished manuscript of Bolton's forthcoming book. The book is going to be called The Room Where It Happened. It's scheduled for publication on March 17th, but a White House review could attempt to delay its publication or block some of its contents. Two people familiar with the book confirmed to us that it details Trump tying aid to the demand for Biden probes. In the book, Bolton also details a number of conversations he had about Ukraine with Trump and key advisors like Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, Acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney, and Attorney General Bill Barr. In a joint statement, the seven House impeachment managers called the report explosive and urged the Senate, controlled by Republicans, to agree to call Bolton as a witness. The trial kicks off its second full week this afternoon as the president's defense team finishes its defense arguments for the president. They started on Saturday. Bolton has said that he will testify before the Senate if subpoenaed. The assertion from Bolton in his book could undermine one core defense that's repeatedly been laid out by Trump and his legal team, that there was no explicit quid pro quo involved when the administration withheld the military assistance, as well as that White House visit that was coveted by the Ukrainian government. The president responded to this new report early today, tweeting, quote, I never told John Bolton that the aid to Ukraine was tied to investigations into Democrats, including the Bidens. In fact, he never complained about this at the time of his very public termination. Charles Cooper, a lawyer for Bolton, says he submitted the manuscript to the National Security Council's Records Management Division back on December 30th for a standard review process to examine potentially classified information. Cooper said they believed that the book manuscript did not include any classified information, but they were also told that the material would not be shared with officials outside that review process. Cooper and Bolton spokeswoman Sarah Tinsley both blame someone inside the White House for leaking details of the book to the Times. They insist that it did not come from the Bolton camp. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and many of his members desperately want to avoid witnesses. They're afraid that if Bolton appears, then there will be more pressure for Mulvaney and others to come forward. But at least four GOP senators are seen as potential votes for favoring more testimony. Susan Collins from Maine, Lisa Murkowski from Alaska, Mitt Romney from Utah, and Lamar Alexander from Tennessee. Romney and Collins have already indicated that they're likely to support hearing from witnesses. Romney's also said explicitly that he wants to hear from Bolton. The conventional wisdom Sunday afternoon was that there would not be four GOP votes for witnesses. 
Now that's less clear. This Bolton revelation has injected a dose of uncertainty into a process that's felt choreographed and inevitable until now. Earlier in the day on Sunday, Trump escalated his attacks on Adam Schiff, issuing what appears to be a veiled threat against the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee. The president called the California Democrat a, quote, very sick man and tweeted, quote, he has not paid the price yet for what he has done to our country. Schiff responded in an interview on NBC's Meet the Press, saying he believes that Trump's remarks were intended as a threat. Then on Fox News, White House Press Secretary Stephanie Grisham replied to Schiff's comment by claiming, against all evidence to the contrary, that the congressman is mentally ill. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar as we start this week. Number one, a brand new Washington Post ABC News poll shows that the president's standing has improved markedly since the fall. The state of the economy and perceptions of Trump's handling of it pose a real challenge for Democratic presidential candidates. Ten months out from Election Day, Americans see Trump as a slight favorite for re-election. 49% of the country expects him to win, and 43% predict that a Democratic challenger will prevail. Our national poll tested Trump in six potential general election head-to-head matchups and finds that registered voters nationwide are roughly split between supporting the president and backing any of the Democratic candidates. In fact, neither Trump nor Democrats hold a statistically significant advantage in any of the matchups, given the poll's four-point margin of sampling error among registered voters. The close matchups between Trump and Democrats, including Joe Biden, Pete Buttigieg, Bernie Sanders, and Elizabeth Warren, represent a big shift from October, when our poll found that all four of those Democrats held double-digit advantages over the incumbent. The shift coincides with a rise in Trump's approval rating from 38% to 44% among the public overall, with 51% disapproving. Trump's improved standing owes in large part to political independence. Trump is now getting between 47 and 52% among independents in those head-to-head matchups with the Democrats, up from 39 to 42% in October. The Post poll also finds that 56% approve of Trump's handling of the economy, up 10% from the fall, and the highest rating on this issue of his presidency. The difference of 12 points between Trump's economic approval rating and his overall approval is an indication of how public opinion on other aspects of Trump performance has been a drag on his overall popularity. These numbers are a wake-up call to Democrats one week out in Iowa. And with polls in the early states showing Sanders taking a big lead, he is facing a growing barrage of attacks from his rivals. The focus on Sanders yesterday represented a shift from much of the past year in which the other candidates largely ignored him. Buttigieg, for example, went hard after Bernie yesterday, warning that he would almost certainly lose to Trump. Amy Klobuchar said Sanders' Medicare for All plan would doom Democrats in a general election. Congresswoman Cindy Axney, a moderate freshman from Iowa who picked up a Republican-held seat, endorsed Biden over the weekend and warned yesterday that Sanders would be dangerous for down-ballot Democrats like her. An even more cutting critique came from another candidate who's skipping Iowa, former New York Mayor Mike Bloomberg. He seemed to mock Sanders' political ideology during a speech to Jewish voters in Miami. He says, I know I'm not the only Jewish candidate running for president. And then he added, but I am the only one who doesn't want to turn America into a kibbutz. That's a reference to the socialism shared by Sanders and the Israeli farm collectives where Sanders worked many decades ago. 
after Sanders was criticized for promoting the endorsement of podcast host Joe Rogan, who's made disrespectful remarks about the transgender community, Biden tweeted Saturday, transgender equality is the civil rights issue of our time. There is no room for compromise when it comes to basic human rights. Sanders campaigned yesterday in Iowa with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, one of the members of the squad, and liberal documentary maker Michael Moore. Sanders sought to turn the sudden hostility he's facing into a battle cry that he hopes will energize his base to turn out in large numbers on caucus night. He said they're attacking him because, quote, the big money interests are getting very nervous. Number two, reports of coronavirus infections and deaths continue to soar in China, and a fifth case has now been confirmed here in the States. The government in Beijing broadened an extraordinary quarantine to more than 50 million people, roughly the population of Spain, enforcing a travel ban in 16 cities across the Hubei province, where the lethal virus first appeared. In the U.S., health officials confirmed three new cases on Sunday, one in Arizona and two more in California, bringing the total to five. The patients in Southern California, Chicago, Arizona, and Washington State each had traveled from Wuhan. All are hospitalized and guarded by security. The CDC said last night that it is investigating 100 people in 26 states, including the five who were confirmed infected. Of that group, 25 have been tested and were not infected with the virus, but they're continuing to be monitored. Chinese officials, however, are warning that the worst is yet to come. Their health minister says the virus is developing the ability to spread more easily, and the demand for medical supplies is overwhelming China's ability to produce them. China's National Health Commission reports that 2,700 people across 30 provinces have now been infected and 80 deaths have been confirmed. Several doctors in Beijing, the capital, have also been infected. Patients have now been confirmed in France, South Korea, Japan, Nepal, Thailand, Singapore, Vietnam, Taiwan, and Australia. The galloping virus, which has crimped travel, shuttered movie theaters, and idled factories, will further depress economic growth in Asia. The virus will also imperil China's ability to meet the targets for additional purchases of U.S. goods that were contained in that Trump deal that he signed with China on trade earlier this month. Number three, Kobe Bryant and his 13-year-old daughter, Gianna, were killed yesterday in a helicopter crash on their way to a travel basketball game. The five-time NBA champion and two-time Olympic gold medalist was only 41 The Bryants were riding in an S-76 helicopter when it crashed about 10 a.m. into a hillside near Calabasas, roughly 30 miles northwest of downtown L.A. The flight manifest listed nine people on board, one pilot and eight passengers. There were no survivors. The smooth shooting guard who patterned his game after Michael Jordan entered the NBA straight out of high school in 1996. By his fourth season, he had teamed with Shaquille O'Neal to win the first of three consecutive championships. Bryant, who retired as the NBA's third all-time leading scorer with 33,643 points, was expected to be inducted to the Basketball Hall of Fame this summer on the first ballot. In retirement, Bryant wrote children's books and produced animated stories while also pursuing assorted media and business projects with his Granity Studios. In 2018, he won an Academy Award for Best Animated Short Film for Dear Basketball, his love letter to the sport. Bryant and Gianna shared a love for basketball, with Bryant serving as her coach and occasionally taking her to Lakers games. Bryant was a tireless competitor who became a global sports icon. 
His journey had begun on his family's driveway in Philadelphia, where on snowy days, Mr. Bryant's mother would ask him to clear the driveway. He would do so just enough to shoot hoops, sometimes putting up hundreds of shots per day as he perfected a form that would become internationally famous. He always said there's no substitute for hard work and practice. Last night, I came across a piece that Kobe wrote in 2001. His words are timely because of his death, but they're also timeless. He wrote, quote, We never know when our time here will be over, so we all need to make the most of every minute we have. And that's The Daily 202 for Monday, January 27th. Let's all resolve to make the most of every minute we have today. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you tomorrow. If you want to get more news about the impeachment process, you can subscribe to a podcast feed from The Washington Post with all our updates in one place, including the latest from The Daily 202's Big Idea, Can He Do That?, and Post Reports. Find it at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts.